Um, <clears throat> so this is the time when uh, I'd like to give um, a, uh, a full Dharma talk on the issue of equanimity. Uh, but I also want to say that uh, I'd be very happy to have dialogue and questions on meditation itself, because I do realize that myself, like other teachers, will come with a slightly different instruction, direction, view, experience. So, um, if you have questions on meditation, either on what we did, or on your meditation at home, or how to meditate at home, or how to meditate at, on the middle of Broadway, um, then you're welcome, just keep the questions, okay? And we'll have a session on that a bit later on. So just remember your questions and we will have a little sort of workshop on, on meditation um, during, during probably after lunch, just so that you know I'm not going to kind of leave it. So your questions on meditation, that, that's absolutely fine. Just keep them on the back burner for the time being. But I do want to take this time to, um, to really explore what is equanimity. Um, and again, like I said before, it's based on the understanding. It's based on the understanding that life is uncontrollable. We are not in control of life. Life is in control of us. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it's obvious, but we act as if it's not like that. We act as if we... Because we're so busy trying to control life. So we think we can. But we know we cannot. One small virus that is utterly invisible <laughs> will just finish us off. Uh, we can't control and so, um, uh, you know, just think about wars, how they start from just some opinion, some view, some crazy leader, some uh, belief system, some illusion, some mistake, some fear, some fantasy, and millions of people get killed. It's so unstable. So our response to that is to be constantly defensive. And there's something that is very uh, important for us to see, how much we invest in protection and defense. Armor. We defend ourselves against threat or imagined threat or what might happen we defend ourselves by trying to understand what I have to do to be better tomorrow, to be better off, for things to be more comfortable, for things, for progress, for success, for uh, health, for... It was... <laughs> even our spiritual life, it's often sort of an armor. We're trying to kind of get everything better. <laughs> I was very funny in California. I was, I was teaching in Spirit Rock. <laughs> and someone, um, we were talking about de development, inner development as um, uh, a little bit uh, 
critically as a kind of a defense mechanism. And someone said, um, a fog, another fucking opportunity for growth. <laughs> yeah, I, was on, I was on the floor, I never heard that before. It was so funny. Another opportunity for growth. We have to grow. Even that is a kind of defense uh, against the uh, uncertainty. And so we build uh, all the time survival mind. The survival mind is busy all the time. And we just need to know that and see it and realize how much we are busy from birth to death trying to get things right, better, protected, safe, and so on and so on. So, um, something behind there is that we're constantly disturbed. That we're working so hard because there's something in us that is disturbed, disturbable, possible, sensitive to be disturbed, to be unprotected, to be unsafe, to be... So we just have to... That's the basis. And... Um, the Dharma would come along and say, look, that's exactly the Buddha's castle. That's why the Buddha left his castle, because he was created, he was understood that to live inside that castle is like the king living inside a castle, but actually it's a prison. But he doesn't notice because it's got thick walls. It looks like a castle. I feel like king of the world. I am fine. My kingdom is there, but actually it's a prison. And the Dharma comes and says, like the Buddha, wake up, it's painful to live like that. So, what's instead of armor, shield? What's instead? And the Dharma would offer something else and say, you can build a protection inside, so you don't need to keep building walls outside. And there's an invisible protection, a quieter inner protection, which is not the outer protection of safety and getting it right and getting it better and, and working all the time and being disturbed and stop reducing disturbance and making sure this is sorted and this sorted and I've got the money and I've got this and I've got this and I've got this. Something else. So, um, Firstly, the Dharma would say, don't escape from being vulnerable. Allow vulnerability. It's like the first noble truth of the Buddha. Allow it. Okay, instead of trying to stop it, I'll allow it. I am vulnerable. I'm living on the edge. There is no safety in life. It's not easy to, but it's necessary to go there. Okay, I'm not escaping into screens, into trying to get better, into running away, into... Instead of that, turning towards the experience. Our experience can be of being disturbed, easily disturbed by life, but I'm turning towards that. That is the experience. And 
instead of feeling that every difficult, unsafe, disturbed or disturbing experience knocking me down and unpleasant and I have to protect, I have to stop, we actually like surfing the waves of disturbance. So disturbance happens just like we did in the meditation. Disturbance happens, maybe a pain in the back. Instead of dealing with it, pushing it, I'm, I must change my posture, I have to do this, I have to quickly take a pill, I need... Surfing the wave. There it is. I'm steady with it. It, it is existing. It is unpleasant. But I'm in the middle of it. And that's the experience right now. And I can hold it. And it's turning to our ease of being disturbed by things. So the practice of equanimity is about being less disturbable. <laughs> being less tendency to be disturbed by things. Rather than trying, and the difference is, the armor, the, the outer protection is trying to reduce disturbance. The inner protection is trying to reduce disturbability, which is a very long word. But you know, you know what I mean. I, maybe there's a better word, I can't think of it right now. Disturbability. <laughs> um, Angst. That's the German word. Yeah, could be. Yeah. Yeah. Sensitivity, readiness to be disturbed. Yeah. I remember one time I was in a retreat in uh, actually in America. Uh, with a Tibetan uh, Zogchen master and we were in a, a big center somewhere, I forget where it, is, where it was and one day a huge bulldozer began to dig the earth right outside the meditation hall and it was like it, there was the window of the meditation hall, big windows and the bulldozer started, huge bulldozer digging and digging and roaring engine and the whole meditation hall was shaking and we were trying to meditate inside and then someone asked the Tibetan teacher the Buddha said you could be enlightened from the rustling of leaves so can you also be enlightened from the roar of a bulldozer <laughs> and the Tibetan teacher was a bit he was a bit sort of stuck with that question <laughs> And he thought about it for a minute and he, in the end he said, yes, actually, I have to say yes, <laughs> which is good, good for him. So, how to practice being less disturbed, disturbable, tendency to be disturbed or to angst? Well, I think from what you've seen and what I've said and from the meditation we did the basic the basic inner protection comes from the three characteristics and the three characteristics are the, na the inner nature of experience what's really happening when we experience something not 
the event itself or the experience itself, but what's inside the experience? What's the liberating core of an experience? And, and the three characteristics are very classic. What we learn when we look carefully at an experience. We learn that experience has in it disturbance, pain and uh, discomfort, very often. We learn that it has, uh, that it is passing and changing and moving and dynamic and not fixed. And we learn that it has no enduring self. So I just want to ex explore those three characteristics. Inside, and that the, this is what we learn when we practice beginning course in mindfulness. It's the inner learning that happens when we come out of what makes mindfulness work, what makes Dharma work, is the um, understanding, which basically the Buddha said, it's only one place for liberation. You can't be liberated there. You can't be liberated to go, go into the sky. You can't be liberated by wishing God to come and bless you with ultimate wisdom. You can't be liberated by running somewhere. There's only one place to find liberation, and that's in the heart of the experience of now, this minute. That's the place of liberation. So what is in the heart of this experience right now? Whatever it is, hearing, thinking, saying, talking, feeling, uh, whatever. So in the heart is the liberating heart of experience is the three characteristics. The first is dukkha, as I said. Dukkha is the sense that there is difficulty and the difficulty is not a problem, the difficulty is our teacher. There is difficulty. Just having probably all of you sort of struggling with a lot of noise in the mind. Okay? Noise in the mind, thoughts. And probably um, most, most of us say, oh, I wish my mind would shut up. <laughs> I wish my mind would leave me up. I wish I could find ultimate peace. But my mind won't let me, find, won't let me be absolutely peaceful. It keeps chattering away like a monkey. So that's already dukkha. That's already dissatisfaction. So inside experience, one of the three characteristics is to notice dissatisfaction. Notice struggle. Notice the survival mind is operating. Thought, what do I need to do tomorrow, is already got inside insecurity that I have to know tomorrow in order to feel better today. Just such a small thing as planning mind, in there is dukkha. And we can, it can be our teacher, not our problem. So dukkha is one of the three characteristics. Dissatisfaction imperfection, experience of imperfection. It's not in life. Sometimes the first noble people say the first noble truth is uh, life is suffering. That is not the first noble truth. The Buddha never said that. The Buddha said that inside the experience of any living being, human or an ant, 
there will be dissatisfaction because there is the pressure to survive for an ant or an or a insect or a bird or a human the pressure to survive means there will be dissatisfaction but life is not suffering life is life our relationship to it has in it suffering and also non-suffering joy sukha so um, but it's important because it's connecting us to the truth the core truth is that there is dissatisfaction in experience and instead of running away from it and instead of doing things from it and instead of trying to build a better world and trying to build a better this and a better me and a better this and, and protect myself more and more this, we just notice the truth of things there, there is disturbability I am disturbed by this thought this feeling, the pain in the back my family issues Trump, I don't know what, whatever. So it's turning towards, don't forget that the Buddha called, in the Buddhist teaching, suffering is called the heavenly messenger. The messenger from heaven. Because it's waking us up to the reality. Instead of trying to kind of build a defense mechanism, we notice that things are, um, there is dissatisfaction. And it's not only the Buddha, it's not only the Buddhist teaching. I'm very <coughs> impressed with the book of Job in the Bible. The book of Job is an amazing, amazing wisdom book. And uh, it's not about being Jewish or not Jewish. Job probably isn't Jewish. Well, we don't know if he's Jewish or not. It's not important. What's important is he went on a journey very similar to the Buddha. And he suffered and he began to use the suffering instead of just as a problem, he used it as search. And search, what, just like the Buddha, what is going on? Why is there this pain? I have to understand it. The Book of Job is a beautiful exploration of uh, one man trying to understand what is the basis of suffering? What's the meaning of suffering? Why is there suffering? And uh, he went on a journey just like the Buddha. And he actually, in, in a way, got enlightened. At the end of the book, he got uh, the book of Job. Uh, a, a beautiful revelation of beingness, of, of compassion. Um, so anyway, the first characteristic Dukkha. Second characteristic, Anicca. What did the Buddha tell the monks when he said, in his more or less last words, be an island to yourself? So what, how did, what did he say to the monks how to do that? And actually, he said to the monks, use the word apamada. Apamada is very similar to the word sati. Sati in Pali, apamada in Pali. Sati means mindfulness, and apamada is a little bit, it's mindfulness with care. It's a, it's a sort of light mindfulness, but it's a bit richer. But he, so he said, be aware of the present 
being aware of the body in the body, feelings in the feelings, mind in mind, be aware of consciousness, be aware and be full of care about what's really happening now, and that's the way to be an island, to be steady. Be aware of the present as it comes and goes, dancing with change. That's the second characteristic. Dance with change. Everything is changing all the time. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is closed. Nothing is... Um, everything is a short shelf life, you could say. It's sell, sell by date. Zero time. Everything passes by. And... Um, and uh, the letting go into the dynamic nature of change and seeing it is the second characteristic. It's inside experience and it's very freeing because nothing is fixed and stuck. We can have an opinion like judgmental mind, critical mind of ourselves or somebody else kind of unpleasant, looks true. When we look carefully at it, it's not there. It's a thought that comes and goes, it has a beginning and an end and is gone. It might come back, but then it, again, it's gone. Everything is gone. Everything disappears, vanishes. Everything. Every moment is gone before it arrives, more or less. This moment has just now gone. <laughs> You're moving your legs. It's done. Your legs were somewhere else completely. Now they're like that. This word is finished. This word is finished. Everything is gone. Every breath is yesterday's. And if we really kind of experience that, it's very freeing. It means everything is flowing past. It's like a great river. And nothing is fixed, nothing is stuck. So it, it frees us um, <clears throat> to be um, in the dance of things rather than stuck with things that we have to defend and deal with. So um, anatta, the third of the three characteristics, is... Um, is uh, being less me, anatta is about the self, and uh, every experience is just an experience. It doesn't need to have a label on it called mine. We may feel that, that it's mine, but if we look carefully, it's not necessarily owned by anybody. And there is a sense of freedom in that we can begin to sense that things are happening by themselves. We can feel that even in the beginning of our meditation practice. Yes, the breath is coming and going. Who did it? I don't know. Who's in charge? I don't know. It just happens. Am I in charge of the sensations flowing through? Did I say, oh, I want my finger to feel this now. Who's in charge? 
So it's, it's questioning the self, and it's questioning this automatic sense of me and the world. That is another aspect of the core liberation of experience, through experience. So the three characteristics are what liberates us inside an experience. And if we experience, if we see experiences through the wisdom of the three characteristics, slowly, slowly we move to liberation. Liberation is not the three characteristics. The three characteristics are our journey to liberation. Because we see the truth of an experience instead of just being an automatic pilot experiencing things. Now this, now this, now this, now this. So, um, that's the basic practice of all uh, uh, mindfulness and awareness. The three characteristics are, and, and if we keep seeing experience through that understanding, we will get more equanimous. It will happen by itself. Just like the exercise we did with pleasant unpleasant before. We will be bigger than pleasant and unpleasant. So we will be less disturbable by practicing classic mindfulness awareness practice. Um, But we can get um, a little bit closer to equanimity. We can begin to explore equanimity uh, in itself. And there's a few ways we can do this. One way is the sense of the bigness of things. The interrelation of things. So, if we experience causes and conditions, everything has a cause, everything has a condition, we are in total relationship. We are in relationship with everything. We're interrelational, interbeing is the word Tikhnatan used. Interrelation will by itself help us to be more equanimous because it's less, I am disturbed by life. No, conditions happen and they move and I'm part of that and a condition happened, maybe a word that someone said and a word that I said and a, a something that happened. It, we're all the time subject to change conditions that make this moment. And a thousand conditions are making this moment. And if we kind of let go into that, that itself creates um, equanimity and steady, steadiness. Another place to practice equanimity is to feel that things don't need to work inside us. In, that we, they don't need to work inside us. So we can have an experience, but we don't need, it doesn't need to 
turn and turn. I'll give you a small example. Um, some time back, I had two, um, I was looking after two of my grandchildren. One was six, one was eight, and they were sitting on the, the sofa next to me, and they were screaming at each other. They were giving each other hell, they were shouting at each other, and I was sitting next to them. So I decided, well, I want to be equanimous. I'm just going to let them shout. And just sit quietly, see what happens in this particular time. I felt their anger. Every time they shouted at each other, I felt it hit a little bit in the tummy. But I was equanimous. I decided nothing, nothing is wrong. That's what they're doing. Um, it's just a little sort of a biological energy of the shouts and doesn't need to work inside me. So I was very calm, very quiet. And because of that, possibly, after like a few minutes, I turned to them and said, um, maybe it's enough. <laughs> we had enough now. And they said, yes, it's enough. <laughs> and I felt my equanimity was right at the time. You know, it was just that experience. I didn't need to react. How can you do that? Stop shouting. I'd be part of that. That would be, I'd be part of the issue. Maybe another time I might have done, but that time I decided to be equanimous. Um, one time in, um, we did a lot of peace work with Palestinians and Israelis uh, in the Middle East. And I did workshops uh, with Palestinians and Israelis for many years, uh, bringing groups of um, Israelis to the Palestinian territories and working for 48 hours uh, together on deep listening and peacemaking. And um, mostly we used Dharma tools, but they were not Dharma people, in the sense that they were not, the Israelis and Palestinians weren't particularly involved in, weren't involved in the Dharma at all, but we used some of the tools of mindfulness, some of the tools of, uh, of, of kindness, and especially deep listening in couples, one Israeli, one Palestinian, talking together about their life in couples, which was very powerful, especially talking about the pain that they experienced in their own life. And peace was really made in that, in that, in those dyads, in those, because you no longer saw the Israeli would no longer see the Palestinian in any label, terrorist or this, it just doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just a guy who, or a woman who's, who's struggling to live, and vice versa also. Anyway, one day, it was really calm. We somehow achieved um, that all these weekends went really, you know, well. We built, we built it very carefully. It was very carefully constructed, the weekends. Um, <laughs> It had to be. And so really, there was, it was quite calm and safe. Um, but one day, the uh, Israelis and Palestinians started to scream at each other, the whole group. It's very unusual, but it happened one day. And I felt, oh, I don't know how to deal with this. <laughs> and they were shouting at each other. So I took my chair and I sat in the middle of the room. And they shouting and shouting and shouting. After five minutes, they stopped. 
I turned to the Palestinian uh, facilitator, Rauda, and said to her, Rauda, I'm sorry. I blew it. I couldn't hold it. I'm sorry. I failed really to hold the, the energy. And she said, no, no, you don't, you, you don't realize. Because you sat there in the middle with equanimity, they all quietened down after five minutes. Otherwise they'd be screaming at each other the whole day. <laughs> I didn't notice. <laughs> it was, I, I, I didn't notice, but I just sat there quietly and, and apparently something worked. So, um, um, me, equanimity can be felt as a sense of not letting things work inside us. Someone can say something problematic to us, conflict, difficulty, and we can, we can feel there is a challenge, but we can also choose not to let it grow and work and develop into a story and into an issue and I have to react to it and I've developed and it needs to develop and I've got to make a strategy. It can be, yes, unpleasant, challenge, comes and goes and each other, it's there, it's gone. And it doesn't work inside. So the the um, the, um, the core issue in the end is, is anatta, is the self. And there is the Tibetan story, the Zen story of the, um, of the uh, empty boat that maybe you know about. So a boatman, um, a passenger comes to a boatman and says, I want to cross the river. And the boatman said, okay, let's go. And they get in the boat and they start rowing. And after a few minutes, another boat comes full of people and hits that boat. And the boatman starts screaming at the other boatman, the other people, how can you do that? Watch where you're going, you idiots. Then they carry on a bit and they get hit by another boat. This one's empty. The boatman says nothing. Passenger says to him, well, why are you not shouting? You shouted at the one before, you're not shouting at this boat that also hit you. He said, there's no point, there's no one to shout at. <laughs> the message here is that if we are the empty boat, then there's no one here to be shouted at. So we are like the empty boat. And that is kind of key to being non-disturbable, to being equanimous, to being steady, to be empty, to be more spacious. If we are more space inside, which is something we learn through meditation and awareness and presence, if there's more space inside, we, we can't be hurt. You can't hurt space. How can you damage space? How can you damage the sky? It's, so if there's a development, our consciousness is like sky. The more we are conscious 
rather than being full of me and my needs and my defenses, we cannot be heard. The sky cannot be heard, space cannot be heard. So that's the key to uh, equanimity. I should say it's quite easy to get to, to get there's one illusion that really we all go there and we all fall in this place all of us and the illusion is that um, equanimity is like uh, calmness and I'm very equanimous now. I shut the door and I feel really good and my meditation is going fine and everything is good and I'm in New York insight and feeling really good and, and, uh, and that, that actually is not equanimity. It's close to something that looks like equanimity but actually is a little bit like non-stick frying pan. It's non-stick. It's things roll off. And the two get very easily mixed up. So uh, all the time I hear it from people, oh yeah, very equanimous. But you know that it's equanimity, that it's, it's actually indifference. It's like keeping away the difficulty. In English you say fair weather friends. As long as the weather, long as the weather is fair, you know, everything's good. Very equanimous now. <laughs> And it, we just should be aware of it. It's a mistake or that we very easily get go to. And it's very easy to make that mistake, so or that muddle. And just as long as we know that. Um, our vulnerability, we can't run away from it. We need feel vulnerable, because it's the nature of life, and be okay with that. Equanimity is being, knowing vulnerability and being entirely okay in the middle of that. Not trying in any way to be indifferent. There is a very nice um, poem. by T.S. Eliot, you know, some of you know T.S. Eliot, maybe, one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. There are three conditions which often look alike, yet differ completely, but they flourish, they grow in the same hedgerow, same hedge. Attachment to self and to things, and, and to persons, detachment from self and from things and from persons, and growing between them indifference, which resembles the others as death resembles life. It's very beautiful. In other words, indifference looks like equanimity or non-attachment, but it's actually Similar, but it's similar as death is to life. They're similar, but they're completely the opposite.
I want to say, oh, um, I don't want to be too extreme. So sometimes we need indifference. Sometimes we do need to shut the door. Sometimes we do need to find a safe place. It's all right. I'm talking about equanimity, but we have to also understand that there are times when that's what we need to do. A retreat, in a way, is finding a safe place. And that's fine. We don't need to, we can say, now is my time when I do need to shut the door, or I do need to be comfortable, or I do need to escape, or I do need to feel like a non-stick frying pan. I'm not ready for that experience. I'm not ready for that experience. That's fine. We are also human beings. But I'm talking here about trying to understand more deeply what is equanimity. So, equanimity, and I want to go in a way to a more deep place. Equanimity is the last of the paramis, the ten paramis, the ten uh, perfections in the Buddhist teaching. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening, which are the qualities that bring us to awakening. It's the fourth of the Brahma-viharas, the immeasurable movements of the heart. So it's really, uh, in a way, the highest quality of, uh, that we can imagine. It's the culmination of practice. And um, it's the culmination because we can begin with equanimity, we can begin to feel that every experience that happens is raw material for awakening, is workable. Instead of defending ourselves and trying to you know, manage life, every experience can be a challenge, can be a disease, can be someone shouting at us, can be joy, can be an ice cream, can be anything becomes an experience which is the raw material for realization. Anything, any word, any sense, something through the senses, any concept, any idea, any, any moment, everything becomes workable, it becomes raw material for awakening. And the Buddha talked about this as gold. And there's a sutta. <coughs> there's a sutta about this, which is very lovely. He said, in the end, the mature after the maturity of your practice, if you practice on and on and on, in the end, the only thing that's left is equanimity. That's the only thing that's left. All experience becomes equanimity. Purified, bright, flexible, shining. It's like gold. A skilled goldsmith will take the gold 
will heat it, will put in, put the furnace, put the gold in the furnace, will burn it, will blow on it, will just watch it, will sprinkle it with water. The gold will be refined, will be pure, will be flexible, will be shining, and can be made into anything at all. All experiences can be made out of it. So it's... Um, It's, uh, in a way, the final, because it's a sense of being open and ready for making any experience an awakening experience. That's where equanimity goes. It's like allowing everything, being open to everything, welcoming everything, because everything is the nature of awakening. And in that place, It's the ultimate protection, actually. Because there's no... It's like you and the world are together, so nobody there can hurt anybody. There is just oneness. There isn't a place to be hurt. The world and you are just together. So who is hurting whom? Who can disturb whom? So that goes to a very high place. But just to let you know that... Um, just to let you know that it, that exists and that uh, equanimity has that quality of super-refined awareness in which everything is uh, workable because it's the world and you are one thing. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll stop with that and um, be happy to have some questions and responses. Yeah, so we, there'll be a microphone Right next to your hand. Yeah. Thank you. And I hope you heard, uh, you heard everything. I did. Great. Can you hear me? I guess you can. Yeah, yeah. Well, very much enjoyed um, what you've just shared. It's tremendous perspective. But I listened to this with a particular question in mind, and that's the intensity that's involved in difficult emotions. So to be able to be with everything, to be open to all experience. For me, the challenge is if I have something that's so difficult for myself, I might go into a panic reaction or feel just so upset. That's when it becomes most challenging to be able to deal with this and to be able to sit with that. So I just want to know if you would talk to that intensity that we're dealing with. Absolutely. Um, so, a part of the intensity is because an emotion recruits the whole person. It gathers together the self, that is the operating principle behind every, you know, it's the, it's the, um, the Windows system in the computer. <laughs> it's the operating system of our being, so emotion will collect the self, behind the self will drive the emotion. It has the body in it, it has story in it, it has narrative in it, it has memory in it. it, it the, a strong emotion will collect all those parts of a human being and build power. And, um, and then we feel it's overwhelming. 
And so, uh, one of the things to do is, first of all, to realize what's happening, to realize the power of a strong emotion, because it's collected all of us. Secondly, to begin to take it to pieces. What is really happening? Maybe to say, okay, I'm only going to focus on body. That's enough. So, the anger that's happening to me, where is it now in the body? Forget the self, forget the narrative, forget the story, forget the memory, forget. Where in the body is this emotion? That already cuts it down to size. And um, um, sometimes we just need to be aware. We, we do need some sympathy for ourselves here, because sometimes our mindfulness, the emotion is up here and our mindfulness is here. And it just is too strong. And we need to know that. We need to keep bringing the mindfulness up. So that it, and, and if the mindfulness is up there and the emotion is here, then the mindfulness can certainly deal with, deal with the emotion. But if the emotion is up here and the mindfulness is here, so we need to develop the power of mind to be able to contain the emotion. And just, but when the emotion is so strong, don't see it as a failure. Sometimes people say, Oh, I've been practicing for 10 years and I still get angry. How is that possible? Maybe the Dharma doesn't work. No, it does work. But we just have to be a bit, a bit more wise. So I asked them, well, how, 10 years ago, when you were angry, how, how many times a month were you angry? Oh, lots. And now, today, how many times? Oh, much less. And how long does it last? Oh, it's much shorter. So yes, there's been change in 10 years, but don't expect that something so biological and so <clears throat> total is just it's going to finish because it's so primal. So anyway, the trick that I can really recommend <clears throat> is taking to pieces an emotion and choosing one part of it. And secondly, to really keep noticing that an emotion has a Nietzsche, beginning and an end. Be really, really aware of the ending of an emotion. So there is an emotion, it's there, it has a natural life cycle. It responds to a challenge, boom, it blows up, and then it's gone. What's the experience after the anger? How is that? What's the space that opens up when the anger is gone, or the anxiety, or the sadness, or the, the irritation, or whatever it is? What space opens when the anger has finished? Being really clear about that will help us. So, um, and as I say, being quite compassionate that, that we can't expect ourselves to be non-human just because we're human beings. Um, emotions can, you know. So the more we work with emotion, the more our equanimity grows. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's slow and steady. Yeah, another question. Um, I think that 
um, at least the way I experienced a lot of your oys were the oys of a very highly privileged society that gets upset because somebody was mean to them in the you know supermarket or lost their phone. But can you speak to your three stages of an experience for children who just experienced mass shooting, um, the Holocaust, um, the slave trade and slavery? I mean, these things don't start and end. They have an like a long-lasting effect for generations. You are from Israel. Everybody in Israel, well, not everybody, but many people in Israel have this experience of family that came from the Holocaust. These people can never, they may live outside a normal life, and they pass it on. The Holocaust passes on through generations. Um, there's no end there. I mean, maybe the momentarily... Uh, oh, I, I'm hoarding bread in the closet. Maybe I won't do that because that's not been my experience. But it doesn't end. Generations after generation, um, they just, just a young man had just killed himself because he was a survivor of Columbine. These things live on, that post-traumatic stress. Um, and yes, maybe mindfulness can help, but I don't see how it can be applied. So <clears throat> I have to say that there isn't any human experience, however hard it feels like, that isn't possible to work with. Every human experience is possible to work with. And I've worked with plenty of people who have uh, been uh, in uh, major trauma. It's true that the kind of practice I'm talking to you here today may not be appropriate for someone with trauma. There may be other things that need to be done. But the Dharma will certainly, the Dharma can potentially really help to uh, look at basic human suffering with new eyes. I've, for example, I've done two workshops, each of five days, two retreats, on the Holocaust with Israelis and Germans together in Berlin and in Israel, bringing people who really suffered, not the Old, the next generation, or one or two generations down. It's true, not the old. But I've had people who've been through the Holocaust in groups that I've done with old people. I've had people who've been directly, uh, who, who have, who have a, a, you know, tattooed number on their arm. It's possible. The Dharma is powerful enough to work with anything. However, you need the right methods. So I, I'm not saying that if we all meditate, we'll all be fine. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying potentially it can work with anything because what tends, what you're talking about is also a kind of population thing which we're mixing. We can't mix it up with Dharma practice. If people, you're more or less putting everything in the same pot and saying those that have generation after generation of pain 
they just have generation after generation of pain, but they're not practicing with it. So we, we just need to be clear that we're talking here about the potential of working with pain through practice. And in my experience, those that are ready to practice and, uh, will um, find that the deepest pains are workable, are potentially workable. It's not fixed and for, but you have to be ready to, to work with it. So, um, you know, I mean, as you say, in Israel, and uh, I have people, the, the, most of the country is sort of in a way uh, suffering from PTSD. But if you're ready to work with it, you can. And there are ways. So I don't believe there's anything that's too uh, beyond, that's impossible to work with. You have to be ready and you have to have, it's true, the right methods. I'll just give you a small example of the, 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 the workshop with the Holocaust. The um, Israeli group were very much the victim by expressing being victims. And they were really, we did meditation, we did, and a lot of stuff coming out. The Israelis were very, very um, verbal about their pain and really able to release it and talk about it. The Germans, who were part of the workshop, were very, very quiet. And somehow or other, their pain wasn't being addressed. And it was really clear that they were holding a pain that was deep and silent and hidden and more, um, more unconscious, subconscious, just stealing joy, but not clear. And in the workshop, we managed by giving acknowledgement to the Germans that were there about their pain and the silence in their families and the pain of, who, of being perpetrator and some shame and guilt that was working underneath in the unconscious, which is more subtle than the being the victim, PTSD, etc. Um, and, and it was so much release when that was acknowledged and, and opened and talked about and cared for and we were holding each other and we were loving each other and we were listening to each other. And here is talking, in here five days on the and we went to a, a, a concentration camp and we meditated there all day in silence, Germans and Israelis together, and cried and, and, and talked and hugged and meditated. There's nothing that can't be worked with if you're ready. That's what I'm saying. But you have to be ready and you have to do something. Yeah. Um, I had difficulty understanding what you meant by autonomy in using by, autonom I mean? autonomy as an aspiration. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't have a feeling for what you actually mean by that and why that's so important, and and also then how that jives with um, you know everything being interconnected, mm -hmm. um, uh, interdependence. Um, if you could elaborate a little on that, I'd appreciate. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, 
I think the word viveka in the Pali is quite a good word. It really means independence. Um, like an island in the stormy seas. The first thing is the island is able to resist the stormy seas, is not destroyed by the storm. The island sits there, and, and that's itself an important aspect of autonomy or of independence, not to be destroyed by the stormy seas of life. And, um, and that's in the word Viveka. Secondly, it's about allowing, also in the word Viveka, allowing us to be true to our truth, namely to what really matters, and to stand firm in what really matters, and in our truth, and not be knocked over by everybody else's opinions, by the herd mind, by what everybody says, and the, and, and the Buddha talked about this, by, by, by uh, uh, the consensus here, and the consensus there, and the influences here, and the influences there, and what I ought to be, and I'm not, I need to be a good boy, that's what I need to do this, and I need to do that, and I need to do that, and we're knocked over all the time by everything else. So it's a sense of standing in our truth, which I think is perhaps a better way of describing it than autonomy. It's, it's, it's standing with our truth. Because the, the, when the Buddha said how to do this, he said, be, stand in your truth, namely, what is my experience in the body? What is my experience in the mind? What is really happening to the heart, in my heart, the feeling life? Where am I with things and what's important? So it's much more that. But I agree with you that the image itself has a problematic side, which is island, uh, you know, is an island <laughs> separate, and it doesn't go so well with interbeing, except all the islands are joined under the sea. <laughs> so you, you can actually, you know, you can play with the image. But, um, but it, I think that the Buddha was very clear because of the word Viveka. So when it was translated as island, it's got a little bit into that image of separation. But it, it's staying with the truth, with your truth, and settling into your truth. And uh, in some way or other, we really need that in our spiritual life. Otherwise, we can actually maybe not, even, not have a spiritual life. We're just knocked, knocked about by everything that happens, and every opinion, and every... The Buddha even said, he was pretty radical. So he said, don't believe old books. So in other words, don't why, throw the Bible in the rubbish bin, <laughs> don't believe in old books, and don't believe in, in, in hierarchies, and don't believe in priests, Brahmins, rabbis. And <laughs> you know, he was pretty radical. But look at, find your truth and stay with it. If it's helpful and beneficial and good for you and good for others and makes happiness and is wise, stay with that. V-I-V-E-K-A? Yes. Is that the word? Okay. Yes. I'm interested in hearing you speak a little bit more about um, uh, equanimity in the context of relationship. So um, uh, my sort of simpleton example that I could think of right now is uh, um, I like to play games. 
board games, card games, etc. Um, I'm not particularly uh, um, uh, upset when I lose. Mm-hmm. I enjoy winning, mm-hmm. but it's I, it's either way. It's the fun of the playing of the game that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. When I put myself in the context of my family, um, there, there are members of my family who really want to win <laughs> and are really um, tied up in knots when they lose and get, can get very upset. Um, or can, not only can get upset at the moment of losing, but can get upset in the middle of the game when it feels as though there's an increasing likelihood that they may lose. So for me, that, you know, the sort of, I'm being very simple about this, but the, the equanimity in the, in the moment of the playing the game is, it, is the sort of the experience of the game. Um, where I find that my equanimity is most um, challenged is that these are people that I care about. And so their um, pain and agony, even though I'm not experiencing it for myself, I actually start to experience it um, with them, for them, etc. And so I have two kind of elements that I'm interested in you commenting on. And please, you don't have to use my awful example. Um, one is um, that is the uh, is that sort of that uh, thing that I'm experiencing, wherein I want them to feel better. In the moment, I want, I want, I want, I want them to to sort of to have the the joy of, of that I'm having, and the other is the um, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is, um, but the sort of surprise that I sometimes experience, and I have this in much more serious moments, where all of a sudden the thing that I feel very um, equanimous about, in fact, others do not, and so my ignorance of how others feel can actually lead me to saying things, doing things in the moment, um, trespassing individuals, because they, while I may feel totally fine about this fact, right, in, you know, my bad example, I'm totally fine with losing, mm-hmm. it actually really matters to them. And I, so I experience, I experience both those pains. That's where I think where I suffer. Yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> um, so in, in a summary, how does our, our equanimity work when faced with the lack of equanimity of those close to us? And one of the places is that if we start um, getting annoyed, upset, or correcting, trying to fix other people's lack of equanimity, then we lose our equanimity. The key about equanimity is it radiates. One time the Buddha was asked, how do you talk to people you don't, who don't agree with you? And he said, um, well, if they don't have strong views and strong opinions, then it's quite easy to talk to them. If they have strong views, sorry, not opinions, emotions. If they have strong views, but not strong emotions, or strong emotions, but not strong views, you can still talk to them, but it's hard work. However, if they have both strong views and strong emotions, forget it. (laughs) You can't talk to them. However, never underestimate the power of equanimity. So, I just want you to remember the story about me with the Palestinians. 
your task there, in a way, in the board game, and with your relatives, is to emanate your equanimity, to offer it to them, energetically, maybe quietly, to give a model of another way of doing things, and maybe with a few words sometimes, um, the right words. Um, you can't control other people. Your, your equanimity has to allow them to blow up. <laughs> you, and, and, but your equanimity will make you independent of success and failure. Will make you independent of success and failure. This is a guide for others because success and failure is, are painful. It's dukkha. So you can add a word here or there to your relatives say, listen, it's painful to get so uh, it, controlled by self. It's basically selfing. The self needs to win. It's, I, I, me, 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 I have to win, I have to win. And if I don't win, I'm one degree less than I was. And you can challenge that by saying, you know, yeah, okay, but success and failure, it's painful. Uh, you find the language. But don't get caught up in it yourself, because then you lose your equanimity. So, I mean, just feel your equanimity does do the job. It helps others to be a little bit more settled. And be aware of it yourself. And uh, a little bit sometimes challenge the pain that goes with ego and uh, with selfing. Um, challenge it sometimes. But you have to be delicate. <laughs> We can't, we can't control others. A little bit, but that's about it. We have to be aware of that. That the best thing we can do is manifest qualities and then spread them out in the world. That's all we can do. We manifest qualities that are inside us and we offer it to others. Instead of trying to, instead of trying to fix others, which gives us hell. Especially those close to us. It gives us hell, trying to fix other people. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.